Right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We come to the end of John's letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And John has been writing so that believers in the church can have assurance of their salvation. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, John gives the purpose for writing this entire letter. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. And so we've been looking throughout this entire time as to how we can check our spiritual pulse, how we can make sure that we are a believer. And so John has giving, given us a list. Julia, we, do you have one more? We have, we have a list there for you of, of the things which we can use to check our spiritual pulse. John characterizes true believers in the following ways. He says, true believers are those who keep his commandments. He says this several times throughout the the letter, but he says we should keep his commandments because if we do not keep his commandments, we are not children of God. We are not born of God. Secondly, we should walk as Christ walked, chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. And then uh, the third one there is that we should love other believers. Those who are true believers are characterized by love for other believers. And then John also says that we should be characterized, we should be people who are not loving the world, chapter 2, verse 15. We should confess the Son and receive Him. We should practice righteousness. We should not practice sinfulness. It should not be the pattern of our lives. We'll talk about that some more this evening. We, we should possess the Spirit of God. We should listen to the Word of God. We should believe that Jesus is the Christ, and we should overcome the world. Now, I've said all of these 11 proofs of salvation can be boiled down into three main things, three main headings. A right belief about God and His Word, a proper obedience to God's Word, and a genuine love for other believers. So if those three main things are characteristic of our lives, then we can be confident, we can stand before God with confidence that we are a believer. And so today we're going to look at at two of those um, proofs of salvation. That is, a proper belief about God's truth and a proper obedience to it. Let's read in 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 18. John writes, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Tonight we're going to see that true faith results in a proper understanding and genuine loyalty. In verses 18 through 20, we see that true faith results in a proper understanding. A proper understanding of Christ's power, first of all. Christ's power over sin and Christ's power over Satan. The first thing I want to show you is that that we should have a proper understanding about Christ's power over sin. We see that in the first part of verse 18. It says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. 
If we are, are really a child of God, if we are really children of God, then we should understand that no believer is characterized by sin. And I say it that way because this language, the way that John writes it here in verse 18 makes it a bit unclear. He says, no one who is born of God sins. And when we read that, we think, no one of God, born of God ever sins is the word we automatically put into that phrase. But... But I don't think that's what John is talking about. Before we, we uh, look at that, let me first tell you what, it, what he means when he says, born of God. Now, whenever John uses this phrase, is born of God, whoever is born of God, he's referring to believers. Turn back to chapter 2. The last verse of chapter 2 reads this way. If you know, 2, 2.29, if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Hey, that's referring to a believer. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. John says, whoever loves is a believer, is born of God. It's the idea of of receiving the new birth from God. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Okay, Both of these phrases, born of God and born of Him, at the end of the verse are referring to believers. We could read it this way. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is a believer, and whoever loves the Father loves the believer. Or other believers. Look at verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So when John is talking about a person who is born of God, he is referring to believers. We've seen that throughout the book. But now what we need to answer in verse 18 is what is he referring to when he says that no one who is born of God sins? How can it be that a person can be without sin? Now, John is clearly not saying that a believer can be without sin. Turn to chapter 1 and verse 8, and I'll show you why I say that. John says here that, that a denial of never having sinned or now being without sin is, is really um, tantamount to, to heresy or apostasy. Verse 8. Of chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. So back, back to chapter 5, when John is referring to the fact that no believer will ever sin, he's not saying no believer will ever sin. He's, he's saying that no believer will be characterized by a sinful pattern of life. The, the general pattern of life will not be for a Christian that they are characterized by sin. And that is because the new birth delivers a believer from the bondage of sin. No longer are we a slave to sin, but we are now a servant of righteousness. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. And I'll show you how John explains what it means when he says no no one born of God sins. Because he uses the same type of language, but he, he adds a helping verb that, that I think um, explains it better. 
chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God, he could say sins there, but it's basically the same thing. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That is, he cannot continually uh, go on as a general pattern of life in sin. That is what marks a true believer. That is what distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This idea of not practicing sin is simply purging our sin. It's, it's getting rid of the sin from our lives so that we, we become more and more pure. And you see this type of, of language throughout Scripture. Psalm chapter 119, verse 101 says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep your word. It is a distilling of our lives so that we get rid of the impurities and we become uh, tried often by fire in order to be proven worthy. In order, to, um, in order to purify us just as gold is purified. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that, that this is an evidence of those who are believers. He says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The general pattern of those who follow after God is that they are purging sin from their lives. They are remaining unstained by the world. They are, they are following on the path of righteousness and as a general pattern are not being stained, not being harmed by the sin of this world. So that is, that is what John is saying here in chapter 5. He's saying that those who are in Christ, those who are born of God as a general pattern of their lives, do not continually practice sin because Christ has power over sin. It is Christ who has bought us out of slavery. But not only do we see Christ's power over sin here, but we also see Christ's power over Satan. Christ's power over Satan, and that's seen in the second part of verse 18 and then verse 19. He says, But he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now I want to address the second part first, verse 19. I want to address that first because I want to show you the nature of Satan's power. And I want, I want you to see that Satan's power is universal. That is, it touches everyone. It is universal in its scope. It, there is not a person on this earth that is is free from or hidden from Satan's power. Satan has power over uh, the entire world. In fact, he's often referred to as the God of this world. Here, John writes in verse 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. The entire world. It is universal in its scope. And so... We have to understand the nature of Satan's power. Now I want to show you um, a couple places where we see the universality of Satan's power. First of all, we see it in his universal power through sin. Look at chapter, Romans chapter 3. Okay, we're going to look at two familiar verses in Romans chapter 3. And you'll see that it affects everyone. 
Satan's power is universal. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? All have sinned. This is universal. Same sort of universal language. It, it, it touches everyone. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Do you see what Paul's point is? Nobody is free from the the effects of Satan and sin. We are born in sin. And so no one is exempt from its power. All of it. All people have sinned. All people are born in sin. But we don't, we don't only see Satan's power through his universal control through sin, but also through the universality of the consequences of sin, that is death. Look at chapter 5 of Romans. Now we are going to see the universality of death. It's, it's everywhere. Everybody will see death. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and then notice, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Because as a result of all of our sin, because of the result of each one of our sins that we have committed, we stand in opposition to a holy God, and so the natural result of sin is death. And Paul says it touches everyone. In fact, even Jesus Christ had to, had to die because he took sin upon himself. I mean, of all people who ever lived, Jesus Christ should not have had to die. But it's because of the universality of sin, because of the, the widespreading nature of Satan's power. He has power through sin and he has power through death. And we see Satan's power turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We see Satan's power most evidently in unbelievers. In fact, we were under Satan's power when we were unbelievers. This is the way Paul, Paul explains it here in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in with, with verse 1, he says, And you... He's talking to believers. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's a reference to Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so basically what he's saying here is, you used to be like this. You used to be under that control, that universal control that Satan has over unbelievers where you formerly walked, the way that, that he controlled and, and he led you, he is now doing that in the sons of disobedience, verse, the end of verse 2. And then verse 3, he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Satan's power uh, through sin is universal. God has given him this power in that it affects all people. No one can, can be free from this sin. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, "...in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." So Satan uses his power to blind the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. They have to have the blinders removed, which is what happens to us through the process of illumination, which happens at salvation. So Satan's power is universal. It is universal. It touches everyone. But we also need to see, turn back to 1 John chapter 5, we also need to see that Satan's power is limited. It is limited. We are untouchable, as John says here. Because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, he does not allow Satan to touch us. The second part of verse 18 reads, But he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. That's referring to Satan, the evil one there. What we need to understand before we get to that phrase, however, is that first phrase. But he who is born of God keeps him. Who is that referring to? There's two parts of that phrase that we need to understand. He who is born of God, who is that referring to? And then keeps him. Who is that referring to? Keeps whom? Okay, so the first part. There are three primary um, views regarding this first phrase. But he who is born of God. It could refer to believers. We have been talking throughout the book of John, 1 John that those who are born of God are believers. So it could read, but, but believers keep him, whoever him is. And we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. Or it could be God. That is, but God who gives birth keeps him. And then the third option is, it could be referring to Christ. That Christ, who was born of God, keeps him. And then basically there are simply two options with regard to that last um, uh, direct object there, keeps him. Who is it that, that this person keeps? It could be referring to believers, or it could be referring to God. So if we took the first part of the verse to refer to believers, we'd read it like this. But believers keep, and then it could be, if, if the second part is referring to believers, it would be, Believers keep themselves, or if it's referring to God, it would be believers hang on to or, or hold on to God. But I want to, I would suggest to you that that first phrase is referring to Jesus Christ. If you have a New American Standard, you see that the, the first subject there, he, is capitalized. And you know that when a pronoun is capitalized in the, in the uh, Bible, that it's referring to a member of the deity. So it could be God or the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ. I believe this is referring to Jesus Christ. Now, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say that God, who was born of God, keeps him. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't see any part anywhere in Scripture that God was ever referred to as being born. Okay? It could very well be believers that he's talking to, but I would suggest to you that it's Jesus Christ. That is, but Jesus, who was born of God, keeps him, that is, believers. Notice that him is, is in lowercase. That is, Jesus keeps believers. He protects believers is the point here. Now you say, well, if God was never born, then how was Jesus ever born? And obviously the first thing we think of is we think of Christmas when Jesus was born into the world. 
But I don't think that this is referring to Jesus being born in the flesh. I think it's referring to um, Jesus' relationship with God. That is, his, his sonship with God. And, uh, in fact, let me have you turn back to Psalm chapter 2. Because I want to show you how a place in which Jesus is referred to as being born of God. Psalm chapter 2. In verse 7, this is, a, this is a psalm about um, the king, which would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the perfect king, the eternal king. So we could refer to this as a messianic psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Notice both of those are capitalized. You are my son, that is God's son, Jesus Christ. Today I have begotten you. That is, I have birthed you, we could say. Okay, so, so we have to understand what this means when, when uh, the writers of Scripture are referring to the begotten son. The, the son who was born of God. Because to us, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that, that Christ was born because... Christ existed eternally, didn't he? But John also refers to Jesus several times. In fact, in the book of John, the Gospel of John, he talks about Jesus being the only begotten of the Father, John chapter 1, verse 14. And then John chapter 1, verse 18, he calls him the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Of course, we remember John three sixteen that says that God sent his only begotten Son, and then John chapter 3, verse 18 also talks about the only begotten Son of God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, he uses similar language. He says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world. And that's why in chapter 5, I would suggest that he is referring to the Son, Jesus Christ, that the Son was born of God. So what does it mean that, that Christ was born of God? Well, I would, I would uh, submit to you that it has to do with his relationship. It does not have to do with who he is. Because there was never a time when Jesus did not exist, when Christ did not exist. Okay? Christ existed eternally. He has always been a member of the deity, uh, of the Trinity. He has always been God. He has always been the Son of God. He has existed that way eternally. But Christ has a different role from God the Father. That is, the Son has a different role, different function from God the Father. I hope you would recognize that. When Christ came into the world, he said, I've come to do the will of, did he say myself? No, he said, I've come to do the will of the one who sent me. I've come to do my Father's will. So there is a distinction there in the Trinity, although they are all, each member of the Trinity is a person, and each person is God, they have different functions. Okay? God, is not the son, or God the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. But each one of them is God. Okay? That's certainly hard for us to understand, but the Scriptures are, are clear on that. God exists eternally as one God, with three persons. 
That is what we know as the Trinity. So, so the idea of sonship, the idea of Jesus being the Son of God, has to do with function. It has to do with his role in uh, the Godhead, not with regard to being. There was never a time when, when Christ was not God. So when did this sonship take place? Because there are several views with regard to when Christ became the Son of God. Some people would suggest that he did not become the Son of God until after the resurrection. That that was the time that he proved that he was God, and so then he became the Son of God. Others would say that it happened at his baptism when, when uh, the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. Then he became the Son of God. Obviously, many people would suggest that it, ha it happened at the Incarnation. That Christ existed eternally, but he did not become the Son until he came into human flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. And they, they base that on the idea that there's no clear mention of the Son in the Old Testament. Now others would suggest that the Son, the, the function between the Son and the Father took place eternally. Or, or I'm sorry, at creation, or sometime before creation, because you have in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that the Son was active in the creation process. That God created all things through the Son, by the Spirit. So the Son had to be there in creation, so other people would suggest that. And then the, the fifth view is that Christ, the Son, existed eternally, meaning he always had that relationship with himself and the Father the Son to the Father, eternally. That there was never a time when He was not the Son. And that's the view that I would uh, think that is, is correct based on my understanding of Scripture. And it, it basically helps us to see that sonship is not something that came upon Christ, like at baptism or at the resurrection or at incarnation, but rather that, that Jesus has always been the Son of God. He has always been that way. That Christ's pre-existence in the Godhead has to do with his relationship with God. And I think that's assumed from, I won't have you turn there, but Luke chapter 20, verse 13, when uh, Jesus gives a parable of the vineyard there, and he says, and the owner of the vineyard, and he's, he's basically using the owner to refer to God the Father here. He says, the owner of the vineyard said this, I will send my beloved son... Perhaps they will respect him. That is, he was already his son before he sent him to the vineyard. And so I, I think it's assumed there. And uh, so basically we could sum up this whole idea of Christ's sonship to the Father by saying that the Son does not derive his deity, his godness, from the Father, but rather he... Um, he derives his sonship from the Father. Okay, And uh, so maybe that's a little bit deeper than we wanted to go this evening, but hopefully that gives you a, a little bit more understanding um, or hopefully uh, maybe a little bit more thirst to study that out a little bit more. Um, so now we need to understand what it means when we, if we're talking about Jesus here, but Jesus keeps him. What does it mean that he keeps the believer? John uses this term in 1 John several times with regard to keeping his commandments, meaning that believers should keep his commandments. Here he's referring to keeping believers from the evil one. 
The idea is that he protects them, and that's why he gives this next phrase, and the evil one does not touch him. So Jesus protects believers in such a way that the evil one does not touch him. And this is consistent with John chapter 17, verse 15, where Jesus says in his prayer, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. The idea there is that, that you, God, would protect these believers from Satan. And that is exactly what John is saying that he does to believers. Now, lest you are fearful because of Satan's universal power, and because Satan has power over everything, we have to understand that Satan does have limits. The nature of his limits is that, first of all, he is limited in time. We've already seen that he's limited in power in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says that the world and the things that are following after this world, the things of this world, they are what? Passing away. And so are the lusts and the desires of those things. The world and its desires are passing away. The person who loves this passing away type um, society, this, this mindset, will also pass away. But the one whose loyalty is that is on something that's permanent, that is, those things which will not pass away, the truth of God, will live forever. So Satan's power is limited in time because he is a part of this passing away world, you see? This world is passing away. Satan's the god of this world. He is also passing away. And there will be a time when Satan has no more power over anyone, not even himself. But he's also limited in his effect. The evil one does not touch him, John says. Even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the evil one cannot touch the believer without God's permission because he is protected. The believer is protected by the power of God. God's power over Satan is greater than Satan's power over the world. God's power over Satan is greater than his power over the world. So if Satan wants to do something to the world or believers, he has to check with God first. Remember Job? Remember what Satan had to do? He had to ask for permission. And God said, all right, now you can strike Job, but don't touch his health. Okay? You can do anything you want to him. Do not touch his body. He does that, and he said, well, of course he's going to serve you, God. Why wouldn't he? You're giving him his health. And then God says, fine, you can take away his health, but you can't kill him. See, God's got a leash on Satan. That's the way I, I view God's control over Satan. It's as if he is a dog on a leash. There's no battle that's going on up in heaven between good and evil. It's not as if God has this whole, um, this whole war-type board. He's got it all mapped out, and Satan's got his board over here, and Satan's trying to figure out some strategic ways to get against God, and God's counteracting what Satan's doing. There's not a case where Satan does something and, and God is fearful of what the next step is that he has to do. It is not that Satan has his power and God doesn't know what's going on with Satan. So he's sitting back here kind of confused. And although he has more power than Satan, he doesn't know what to do next because Satan may have a counter move. No. God is in control over everything that Satan is doing. 
It's as if he has Satan on a leash. And whenever he wants to, he brings Satan in real tight, real close to him. Meaning, he will not allow him to, to go after things in this world, believers and unbelievers alike. And other times, he releases the leash so that he can enact some sort of judgment upon people. That is God's power over Satan. God is in control of him. He has control over everything that Satan does. There is nothing that Satan can do without God's permission. It is all a part of God's perfect plan. And so that doesn't mean that just because God is protecting us from Satan that we should, we should be like that child who knows that the dog is not going to get across the fence and taunt the dog from the other side and uh, offer maybe a piece of meat in front of the fence. We shouldn't do that to Satan. Okay? We shouldn't ever dabble in any sort of evil activity or satanic activity just because we know that God will protect us. Certainly the scriptures warn us against that. So Christ has power over sin and Christ has power over Satan, verses 18 and 19. But we also gain an understanding, those who are born of God gain an understanding of Christ's presence, verse 20. John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This understanding that we receive comes only to believers. This understanding is a, is a grace that we receive in order to grasp bi biblical teaching, in order to understand the significance of it and to put it into practice. This can only happen to believers. And I would suggest to you that this is referring to illumination, that is, the unblinding of our eyes. Because remember, Satan is the god of this world and he blinds the minds of unbelievers. But when God does that supernatural work of salvation, of regeneration in your life, he unblinds you to the, to the false things of this world. So that you can now have a, a proper, a positive response to the scriptures. You could not do that before. Do you realize that? As an unbeliever, you could not have a proper response to the Scriptures. In fact, you didn't accept them as true. You may have acknowledged them, but you certainly you didn't understand their significance, and you could not put them into practice. Because no one, who it, the person who is not born of God, is continually in sin. They continually are in the pattern of sin. So we have an understanding of Christ's presence. This understanding comes from, from God. It is a gift of God. Luke 24, 45 reads, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is something that God does at regeneration, and he continues to do it throughout the Christian life, so that we are continually being uh, changed by, by the truth of the scriptures, where we are, we are constantly being uh, removing where God is removing our hostility towards the Scriptures and increasing our faith in the Scriptures. This is a constant work that God is doing of illumination, of unblinding our minds because of sin. And basically, I've kind of alluded to them, but illumination involves two things. It involves certainty that the Scriptures came from God and are true, 
So certainty that the scriptures are true. And secondly, illumination involves removal of hostility toward the scripture. And that's because of our depravity that we have this hostility toward scripture. No, I don't want to have my sin exposed. I don't want to have it exposed. Do you know people like this? In the world where they, where they don't want to get involved in other believers. They don't want to come to church. They don't want to be around holy rollers. Because they don't want their sin exposed. They don't want to see what the real truth is. And that is what, that's what uh, kind of work God does in believers. He, he allows the scriptures to expose sin that, so that we can be constantly purging it from our lives and being changed into the image of Christ. Now, illumination does not mean by any means that we have perfect clarity. That in everything that we look at in Scripture, we understand it perfectly. Understanding the Scriptures still requires that we use the normal process of understanding language. And so it takes work. And that's why it's important for us to take time to delve into it, to study it, to try to see what the writers were talking about when they originally wrote it. So, although it doesn't mean perfect clarity, it certainly is possible through um, the illumination, the illuminating work of, of the Spirit. All right, so let's look at the end of the verse because it talks about um, that this is the true God. It says, this is the true God and eternal life. So, who is John referring to when he says this? is the true God and eternal life. Because he was just talking about both God the Father and God the Son. He says, And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. That's speaking of God, because the next phrase said, says, In His Son, Jesus Christ. So it's talking about both God the Father and God the Son. So what is John referring to when he says this? Is he saying God is the true God and eternal life? Or is he saying Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life? Well, I, I, would, um, I think that John is referring to Jesus Christ. And he's done this twice in this epistle when he's called God, Jesus Christ both God and eternal life. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, that's God the Father, and this life is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Who is eternal life through? It's through the Son, Jesus Christ. Certainly it's from God, but it's through the Son, Jesus Christ. So, so Jesus Christ is referred to as being the one who gives life. Look at chapter 1. The very first word of this epistle, the first verse of this epistle, John writes, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that is Jesus Christ, and the life was manifested... And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says that this life, this life of Jesus Christ was manifested 
in such a way that it gives to us, it grants to those who follow him eternal life. So when John is referring to to this being the true God and eternal life, I believe he's referring to Jesus Christ. And so his point is that anyone who worships God apart from Jesus is living in idolatry. And that's why he concludes the passage with the final proof of our faith, and that is that true faith results in genuine loyalty to God. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It seems like it doesn't fit. John has not talked about idols throughout the rest of the passage, throughout the rest of the letter. And now all of a sudden, he's talking about Jesus Christ and the benefits that come through him and eternal life. And then he says, little children, guard yourself from idols. Now, what he's probably doing is giving a final warning, which the writers of Scripture often do. They give a final warning to their readers. So he's probably doing that. But how does this tie in to what he was talking about before? He's saying, listen, true worship, worship that is to the true and living God, must be through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the true God. Remember what his opponents were saying? John's opponents were saying that that you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to believe in Jesus because, you know, he didn't really come in the flesh. He just joined the, the body of this man whose name happened to be Jesus. He joined the body of him at baptism and then he left at the resurrection. And these opponents were trying to suggest that that the incarnation was not important. The fact that Jesus Christ was born of, of Mary and came into the world, it's not important to understand that, that, that God came in human flesh. And John's saying, listen, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. This is one of the proofs that you are a child of God. You have to understand that Jesus Christ is God and that he is eternal life. That is, he gives life. And so the necessary result of that, when we are gripped by that truth that Jesus Christ is God and that he demands exclusive worship, it results in genuine loyalty. It results of putting away these idols. It results in guarding ourselves against these false gods because true faith guards against anyone who is worship, any, any type of worship that is toward something other than God. That's what true faith does. It, it guards against that. And so I think this truth goes along well with what we talked about this morning. That is, it's time to choose. John concludes the same way that Joshua concludes, basically, his final plea to the Israelites. John says, it's time to choose. You need to guard yourself from idols. You need to choose whom you're going to serve. Is it going to be the God of this world, the gods of this world? Is it going to be Satan and the things that he offers? Or is it going to be the God of heaven? There's no such thing as a believer who worships idols. There's no such thing as a person who is a child of God and a child of Satan. If you're a child of God, you are no longer a child of Satan. There's no such thing as a person who loves God and loves the world. You either love God or you love the world. You don't do both. It's time to choose. Living lives that are free from sin and idolatry requires 
that we have personal holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So the, so the basic pursuit in our lives as believers should be that we are, are becoming more holy. That we are continually purging sin. That we are continually putting away the gods of this world. Does that mean that the pursuit of holiness is the basis of our salvation? Does that mean that that is what we need to do in order for, for God to grant us some grace? Certainly not. John has said that that is not the case at all. In fact, the grace of God comes based on God's own free will. The basis for our salvation is the work of Christ. But the necessary result of it is that we act holy. Holy that we act in a, in a manner that is worthy of our calling, that we do these things that you have listed there at the top of your sheet, that we are people who are characterized by a life of righteousness, that we are characterized by love, by obedience, by a proper understanding of the Scriptures. These are the necessary results of those who have been saved. We should have a desire to understand God's truth, to obey God's truth, and to love other believers. Now, John is, is trying to encourage us one final time that, that we need to check ourselves. We need to check our spiritual pulse to see if we are in the faith, to see if we are truly believers. God certainly doesn't require perfection from us. There's no one who can be perfect, save Jesus Christ. But he does require that we grieve over our sin. When we have taken these idols and, and have made them rivals to our God that we serve, when we have moved God down on the list of priority of things that we want to, to, uh, to please in our lives, we should grieve over that fact. And only believers will do that, will, will genuinely feel grief that results in repentance, that results in change. We should be constantly pursuing after truth and righteousness instead of pursuing after the things of this world and the gods of this world. Are you a child of God? Have you been able to see through this study of this epistle that, that these things are characteristics of your, characteristic of your life? Certainly there, there are things that we all can work on. But has God given you the grace to believe and to understand and to have confidence in your personal salvation? Because believers are not believers in name only. They are not born of God just because they, want, they put on some tag. Hello, my name is Joe Believer. They're believers in their conduct, in the way that they act. They're not just believers because they do certain things. They're believers because of the change that has taken place within their lives. And the outworking of that is that their lives flow out with a love for and desire for the things of God. If we are true believers of God, then we will be marked by loyal devotion to Him, to our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will be continually, verse 21, guarding ourselves from idols. Let's bow together for prayer and ask God's help in this way. 
Lord, we thank you for this study that we've been able to have in this uh, letter that John wrote to these churches. And we thank, we're thankful that we can understand more about who Jesus Christ is and what his relationship is to you and, and what his relationship is to us. The amount of love that he showed to us is certainly amazing. It is amazing to think that if it were not for your grace, if it were not for his sacrifice, we would justly, it would be right for you to condemn us for all of eternity because of our sin. So it is amazing to think that you allowed Jesus Christ to come into this world to be ridiculed by by his own people, to be rejected, to be beaten, to be crucified so that we could have life. He, being just, died for us who are unjust so that we can live in him. We are amazed at your grace and salvation. We pray that we would be gripped by its truth that our lives would be a reflection of your grace, that we would constantly be people who are considering how we can purge sin from our lives so that we can exalt you as, as the one and only Lord of our lives, so that Jesus Christ would be magnified in all things, and that he would be lifted up, and that everyone around us would be able to see what a great God we serve, Not so that they can give praise to us, but so that they can see for themselves the great God that you are and worship you for, for themselves. Lord, certainly we want to see people change. We want to see ourselves changed, and we need your help. So we pray that you would help us to consider these truths and to think on them, to reflect on them, to meditate, and to to think of how we can better be servants of our great master. We pray that you would uh, give us the strength to do that through your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name, our great Savior. Amen.